I've organized um, today's sermon into six questions. So I'm approaching the text with six questions as kind of the organizing principle. And what's interesting is those questions came from the text. I didn't invent them. They just came out of the text. But as I wrestled with the questions, I realized that these six questions could be used to organize not just Isaiah 45, but to organize your life. Here they are. Question one, what is my purpose? Question two, who's running the show here? Question three, does my opinion count? Question four, so uh, if it's not about me, who's going to step in to make things right? Question five, how can I know they're not playing games? Question six, so I guess I'd uh, better change my behavior, right? I was thinking about kindergarten and how these questions organized my life when I was in kindergarten. What is my purpose? My purpose in kindergarten was to get candy and meet girls. That's uh, what kindergarten was all about for me. I was still in Newmarket as a kindergarten-aged boy, and I loved every minute of it. It was the uh, Wild Wild West, 1979, I think it was. And so kissing tag was still allowed at school, so that was pretty fun. That's how we spent our recesses. That was my purpose in kindergarten. Who's running the show? Well, I thought I was running the show. Some things change, some things stay the same. Maybe you could think about your kindergarten years. Or maybe think about grade six. Does my opinion count? Or the first time you kind of hit that brick wall, you realize that nobody cares what you think? That's a hard moment, isn't it? Kindergarten, grade six, people tend to still humor you. You're like, okay, I, I have an opinion. And then you get to, I don't remember when it was, maybe grade Grade 10 was when it really hit me that nobody really cares what I think. If they don't care what I think, well then, who's going to fix this? I'll never forget one of my early mentors in ministry. It still hurts to this day to recount the story. I can't believe I'm about to tell you. He took me aside. He said, you know, Todd, you don't always have to take over every situation, right? I was like, oh, man. That was, I don't even know how long ago that was. 24 years, I'm still learning that lesson. But it's hard for me to trust someone else to lead because how do I know if they're playing games or not? Maybe you can relate. We have a municipal election coming up. I drive past all those signs. I'm like, how do I know what you stand for? How do I know how to trust you? How do I know you're not just playing games? Of course, my behavior. Isn't that terrible about being an adult? You ask these questions about other people and then within... Moments you realize that you should be asking yourself the very same question. What about my integrity? What do I stand for? Am I doing the right thing? These questions, all six of them, are answered for us in Isaiah 45 this morning. Have a listen. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings. To open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. 
that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him, woe to her who strives with him who formed him or her. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or, uh, your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, uh, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. I've stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush, and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The maker of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in the land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come, draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return to me. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. I mean, talk about biting off more than you can chew. Help me, Jesus. Okay, so here's question one. What is my purpose? What is your purpose? Your purpose is to be laid hold of by God, to do incredible things, to know God, and to know that He knows you. We find this in verse one. Thus says the Lord to His Messiah, to Cyrus. He calls Him a Messiah here. Thus says the Lord to His Messiah, to Cyrus. We need to remember that here in the book of Isaiah, we have a few things happening all at once. We have God speaking to his prophet Isaiah. We have God speaking through his prophet Isaiah to Isaiah's contemporaries, to the people of Jerusalem in pre-exilic times before they were conquered by the Babylonians and exiled. We have God speaking to his prophet through his prophet, through the events that would unfold post-exile when the exiles would return because of the work of King Cyrus to the land of promise to reestablish the worship of the one and only God in the land of Israel, the place where his presence dwells, a land in which the Messiah, Jesus, would come, in which he would arise, in which he would work that final victory over death, hell, sin, and the grave. 
into whom we, the Gentiles, non-Jews, would one day be gathered as His church would spread from Judea, where these words were first spoken, to indeed the ends of the earth. So if this is just God speaking to an old prophet, to you know, a kingdom that no longer exists, the kingdom of Persia, it means nothing to us. But if in this prophecy God's words still speak to us today, then we find in them particular resonance. God, Isaiah the prophet, Cyrus, for God's people, to Jesus, for you. One of the key testimonies of the Old Testament is that God is singularly focused on calling to himself a people. In this case this morning in Isaiah 45, we can say that Cyrus existed to be laid hold of by God. He existed to be laid hold of by God for God's purposes. And if that can be said to be true of King Cyrus of Persia, because of what Jesus has done, because we know the history of Jesus' church, Because we are still here today, in fact, preaching and receiving these words, we can say that the same is true of you. You exist to be laid hold of by God. Here's the question. God has already grabbed you, but are you resisting? I think if you look at your life, you can see that you spend much time resisting. I know this is very true in me. If I was really ruthless, I would say I spent maybe the last 15 years resisting some of the particularities of what God was calling me to. I said to my wife just yesterday, I think the Lord had to crush me to bring me to the place where I would stop resisting His purposes for my life. And the same might be true for you. Has God already laid hold of you, but you are resisting Him? The clear testimony of the book of Isaiah is that God's going to win. He's going to win, so you might as well tap out now. Because the sooner you say, Uncle, the sooner you're going to be able to cry, Hallelujah! as you discover the secret joy that is found only in obedience. This is the difficult thing about obedience. God calls you to obey, and on the other side of obedience, the Lord provides for you. This doesn't just happen with Cyrus. It hasn't just happened with me. It hasn't just happened with you. Think of your favorite biblical characters. What does God say to Abraham? Go to the land that I will show you. All right? What does God say to his disciples in Christ as he sends them out two by two? Don't take an extra bag, an extra pair of sandals. Don't take any money. Just go ahead. Preach the gospel. Trust me to provide for you. There's just two stories. In fact, almost every biblical story you can think of has this element to it. Obedience first, then provision. On the other side of obedience lie incredible exploits. We see this outlined in the second part of verse 1 through verse 3. Look what happens. He sends Cyrus to subdue nations, loose the belts of kings. He's going to open doors before him and gates that may not be closed. He's going to go before him. He's going to level the exalted places. He'll break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. He's literally going to drop the pants of kings. Okay, it's a powerful image of those in authority being brought low as they realize and recognize the authority of the king of kings. He's going to open unclosable doors. He's going to flatten high places. He's going to give his people impossible access, riches and knowledge of God himself. That sounds like a pretty actualized life to me. 
The teachable point for you is this. When God gets hold of someone, amazing things happen. Therefore, it may be time for you to expand your vision. Okay, if this is true, not just of Cyrus, but if this is true of God's people throughout biblical history, and if you know anything about the Bible, you know that this story is repeated over and over and over again as God calls someone to himself, commands them to obey him, often in the absence of any proof, and then as they obey him, despite their failings, no one ever does it perfectly, as they obey him, as they begin walking with him, he begins to open doors that no one can shut. So maybe it's time for you to expand your vision, to borrow a phrase from my father, James Donald Cantillon, it's time for you to dream a new dream. It sounds all well and good, Todd, but how do I know this is actually going to happen? This leads us to question number two. Who's running the show here? Right? It's important to know who's in charge. Ultimately, can we trust them? Are they going to come through? Who's in charge here? Who's running the show here? God is. Why? Because he made a deal. He's the primary agent in the universe. He equips you whether you know it or not, and his supremacy is absolute. Look at verse 4. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen. This uh, immediately ought to take us to God striking his covenant, in the Hebrew, cutting his covenant with Father Abraham. For the sake of my servant Jacob, why is he being faithful to Jacob? Because Jacob is a descendant of Isaac. And Isaac was a descendant of Abraham. And Abraham was the man with whom God cut his covenant in Genesis chapter 17. I won't read you all of verses 1 through 8, but I'll hit the high points. Abraham's 99 years old. God shows up. He says, I'm God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Abraham does the smart thing. He falls on his face before the Lord and just kind of shakes in his boots as the Lord says the following to him. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Here's the key part. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God made a promise to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 17, and God keeps his promises. This is applicable to you, even though your name is not Abraham or Sarah, because in the faithfulness that God showed to Abraham and to Sarah and to their descendants, we see the character of God on display. His faithfulness to you is rooted in his faithfulness, period. I'll say it again. His faithfulness to you is rooted in his faithfulness, period. He's faithful to protect his good name. He made a promise that he intends to keep. And so long as you're a part of his people, he will keep the promise that he made to Abraham through being faithful to you. We do well to remember that the best response to God's faithfulness is worship and love. Right? Not to try and do better, not to try and work harder, not to try and achieve more, but to simply worship Him because He's good and to love Him because He first loved us. We're not trying to be better people. What we're trying to do here is learn to love the deal maker. Because the deal maker ultimately is the one who is Active. We see this outlined in verses 4 through 5. For the sake of my servant. 
I will call you by your name. And then verse 5, I am the Lord. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. God is the one here who calls. God is the one here who names things. He is the one who equips. And I love that he does this, even though Cyrus does not know him. This is a little bit difficult for us because we're big on self-actualization. Right? Aren't you uncomfortable with this? You're the active agent, and I'm just kind of passively doing whatever you tell me to do? Is that hard for you? It's hard for me. I'm an active person. I want to do things. I want to make a difference. I want to achieve things. And so when I see here that God is trumpeting the fact that he is the active agent in the universe, it forces me to bow my knee to him, and I am not yet as good at bowing as I will one day be. It's hard to follow Jesus because his supremacy is so absolute. He is the ultimate self. God trumpets this in verses 6 through 8. Listen, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds raid down righteousness. Let the earth open, that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. I am the Lord who does all these things. He's supreme. He's mighty. He is awesome. Period. So, um, wait a minute here. With all this supremacy we're talking about, question three, does my opinion count at all? Does my opinion count at all? Well, here's the answer. Um, no. It doesn't. In fact, it's dangerous to think that it does. You need to remember who you are and who you're not. You need to remember what you do and what you do not No. Consider verses 9 through 12. Woe to him. Woe to her who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who formed it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles? Woe to him who says to his father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him. Ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created men and women on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. Verse 9, woe to him who strives with him who formed him. Every time the Bible pronounces woes, um, it's a very bad thing. Let's uh, just check Luke 6 real quick. This is Luke 6, 24 through 25. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. That's Jesus speaking there. That's worth the Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy. You don't want to get caught on the wrong side of a woe. You know, the best way not to get caught on the wrong side of a woe is to remember who you are and who you are not. Verse 9b, does the clay say to the one who formed it, what are you making? Or um, your work has no handles. But how often have you been guilty of saying to the Lord, this work has no handles? I was guilty of that this morning. This work has no handles. Remember who you are and who you are not. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hands. Isaiah 64, 8. What's really difficult is that most of the time, the earthen pots we talk about in the Bible were used for two things and two things, well, three things. One for water, 
two for bringing wheat, three for poop. So next time you feel impressed with yourself, don't be. And remember what you don't know. Consider verses 11 through 12. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? He's saying here lyrically, he's mocking you. He's mocking me. He's saying, I know the future. How about you tell me what's going to happen? This leads us to question four. So if it's not me, then who's going to step in to make things right? This is beautiful. You know who's going to step in to make things right? A Savior who will raise up those who have been downtrodden. The builder of the city of God, the freer of the exile, someone in whom is God, someone whose salvation will last forever, someone who will never fail. This someone is outlined in verses 13 through 17. Isaiah is prophesying about Cyrus and through Cyrus and his works, which culminate, of course, in the return from exile, which leads to, of course, the birth of Christ, which leads to, of course, the greatest salvation that was ever wrought. This is who Isaiah is prophesying about in verses 13 through 17. I've stirred him up in righteousness. I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free. Not for price or reward, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you and there is no other, no God besides him. Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. I have stirred him up. He shall build my city. Hear the echoes of Scripture for he was looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. Hebrews 11.10 But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Hebrews 11.16 Or of course, the immortal words of Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven for God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away then he who was seated on the throne said behold I make all things new it's going to sound much better in the Hebrew someday Isaiah is not just prophesying about Cyrus here he's prophesying about someone much greater the builder the freer the one who is one with the father the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world the bright and morning star who never fails our Jesus God the son made flesh who entered into space time to live a perfect and sinless life to fully fulfill the will of God his father to ultimately go to a cross, to hang there, so that as he did, the sins of the world, your sin and mine, might be put upon him, that he might bear the penalty that we ought to have borne, that he might suffer and die once for all, 
That he might not stay dead, but rise again, defeating in his body the power of Satan, sin, death, and hell forever. That he might ascend to his Father's right hand, sit down in victory, intercede for you until that great and glorious day comes when he returns again in glory to judge the living and the dead and to inaugurate his kingdom which will have no end, a kingdom in which you have a place. Our King Jesus did this. And you're saying I could trust him? Because I have question five. How do I know he's not playing games? How do you know? Because he says so. Because he's the maker. Because he doesn't keep secrets. He tells the truth. He's not a false God. He's righteous. He's the Savior. He is singular. Consider verses 18 through 21. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it, he established it. He did not create it empty, he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord, and there is no other God besides me? A righteous God and a Savior, there is none beside me. Verse 19, I did not speak in secret. You can know, trust, and believe that God is not holding anything back. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34, 8. Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden. And what? I will give you what? Rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 29. He's not holding back. He's not playing games. In fact, you can trust him completely. Luke 11, verse 9 through 13 testifies to this. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to those who knock, it will be opened. What father among you? This is the best part. If his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, hear it, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask it of him? He is good and his love endures forever. He's not holding back. There is no one like him. This, of course, leads me to question number six. I'm almost going to finish on time. Do you feel like you're listening to an auctioneer this morning? I apologize. Question six. So in light of all this, I guess I better repent, huh? Isn't that where this leads you? This leads me to repentance. In fact, the second I read this, I was like, oh my God, my life has to completely change. And I've been walking with Jesus since I was a boy. And I read this, and it like whooped me in my head. It was like, repent. So you're saying I need to repent. That would be a very good idea. That would be a very good idea. Consider verses 22 through 25. Turn to me and be saved. There's your repentance right there. Turn. That's what repent means. You're going like this. You stop. You turn around. You walk in newness of life. Turn to me and be saved. Hear it. All the ends of the earth. Woo! For I am God and there is no other. 
By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Get a load of this. Worship team, I'm almost done. You can run to the stage. Ooh. No, you don't need to run. Turn to me and be saved. Here at verse 22, all the ends of the earth, repentance is available to all the ends of the earth. I really like the wideness in that mercy. And I really love the effectiveness of it. Verse 23, from my mouth has gone out a word that shall not return. John 6, Jesus said to them, receive it, church, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but that I should raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up. I will raise her up on the last day. That is why. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father in Philippians 2, 10 and 11. If you ever thought that people were going to begrudgingly bow the knee to Jesus, you ought to look into the etymology of the word confess. And you know what it means? To joyfully acclaim. Every knee will bow and every tongue will joyfully acclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that leads us to finish with verses 24 through 25. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Hear it and build your life on it. Only in the Lord is righteousness and strength. Only in the Lord is righteousness and strength. Everyone who disagrees with him will one day be put to shame. Now, I highly suggest that you don't quote that verse to anyone until the day comes when you see that verse made flesh as you stand there before the throne of God and of the Lamb. Hold that verse in your heart and because you know that one day everyone who despises the Lord will be put to shame, you don't ever have to put anyone to shame. You don't ever have to fight anyone. You don't ever have to disagree vehemently with anyone ever again. Not because you're smug or triumphalist, but because you know and you hold in your heart that one day Jesus the King will have his victory and you know that Jesus the King is good in everything he does and you know that repentance is available to all the ends of the earth and so you know that when the day comes when God brings all things to their close, we will confess with joy that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. It will be good. It will be beautiful. Everyone there assembled will know that what God has done is just. 
So you can live in peace, harmony. You can extend mercy, love, and kindness. Because it's not your job to have the victory. It's the Lord God's job to have the victory. And in the end, all the offspring of Israel, hear this, shall be justified and shall glory, or taken literally from the Hebrew, in Yahweh, hear it, they are righteous and shall praise all the seed of Israel. If that's not comforting, I don't know what is. In Yahweh, they are righteous. You are made righteous in God. What is my purpose? Um, who's running the show here? Does my opinion count? If it's not me, who's going to step in to make things right? How can I know that they're not playing games? So you're saying I have to change? Turns out, because in Yahweh you are righteous, that God is the answer you're looking for.